said, is on our website, Facebook media pages. You can look to that if you want more detail. You can also let us know on those connection cards, and we'll get you any information that you want to know. Now I want to move to our time here in the Word. And I want to sort of inaugurate this time by making a statement I make every year the week before Christmas. And it is this. It is official. Christmas time is here. We are eight days away from Christmas. And in this week, in a week, we'll officially celebrate this historical event that changed the world today as we know it, the incarnation or the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, even though the majority of us in this room would agree that Christmas has a very particular meaning for the, Christ, the Christian, at least it should, it's a very pointed statement that we declare to the world this time of the year that we, you know we celebrate this holiday because it is the inaugural way that God began to build his New Testament kingdom in the world the coming of Jesus set apart the movement of the church or set aside the movement of the church and eventually what happened is this this story we celebrate this month actually changes the world it make it inalterably changes the world in pretty powerful ways and this is a very pointed reality for, our, for the Christian community, but it is not necessarily the case for the rest of our culture, where there tends to be a pretty diverse understanding of what Christmas is and what it means. Uh, some people don't affirm it at all. This, there's no judgment here. I mean, we are free to sort of see this however we want. My job here this morning is to frame it for those of us that follow Christ. We want to see it a very certain way. Some people don't affirm Christmas at all. Uh, some people have, uh, for Christmas, it's just a matter of taking a couple of days off vacationing. For some people, it is the rampant exchange of gifts. For some people, it is a time of sorrow, as they are reminded. Uh, for example, uh, some of you, and even in my family, there have been pretty significant deaths in the family over the past year. And so while the, war, the world moves on, some of us are reminded of who we don't have with us at the Christmas table this year. Some of us, you know, in an exuberant way, just really press into this joyful holiday. This is a, a bag of mixed emotions and reality for people. And there is no denying that for many people, probably at the top of the list of what Christmas is, is a holiday all about giving and getting gifts. And to a certain extent, I just want to say that this actually can be a good thing. I'm not against, and we're not against giving and getting gifts, so long as it doesn't become an ultimate thing. That's where it kind of can become a problem. And I'll tell you, if you haven't already sensed this, if you maybe are not agreeing with what I'm saying here, this was really evidenced to me this week by the increased amount of traffic here in Port Orange. On Thursday of last week, I was talking to my wife about it. it see, something was off, like I could not go anywhere and not sit in bumper-to-bumper gridlock traffic. The roads were very aggressive. It was pretty crazy. Any store I went into, ha it was just packed with people. And it sort of, you know, it took a couple of minutes to connect the dots there. But each day as I was on the road, the traffic and the intensity of people out got worse. Yesterday was a madhouse. I had to go see my parents in New Smyrna pick up a couple of things on the way, and you literally are fighting to exist in the world today, to get anywhere. And it sort of hit me, because yesterday I had to go out and pick up a gift, that the reason all of this is, is happening is not from some random coincidence. It's actually because we're in the, the peak of the Christmas rush. This is the time of the year where there's a week left before Christmas, and everybody's trying to figure out what to do. People are out in droves shopping and running errands to prepare for Christmas. And so with this in mind, I want to tap into this reality. I want to spend some time affirming this cultural sentiment. People like to receive and give gifts. And we're going to do this by talking about 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, because it's there we learn that Christmas actually is about giving and receiving gifts. It, that is the foundational essence of what Christmas is. 
It's just not necessarily or always the kind that we buy in a store, in the mall, or online. Those are good gifts, but they're not the great gift or the greatest gift that God wants us to really dwell upon this year. Christmas is about an opportunity to know the greatest gift giver. In, in receiving the gift Jesus, we get to know the Father in heaven, who is the greatest giver of gifts. His gifts give light to the world. And what I want to talk about today is just two gifts that God gives us, the Christmas season. Two gifts that Jesus' arrival gi gives us. It's pretty powerful stuff through his birth, his advent. And we begin by looking at the first gift that John tells us about. When Jesus came to the earth, he came to give us the gift of eternal life. I want to talk about gifts this morning. And for this week and next week, I talked to our worship team about a month ago. I want to be really old school. I actually want to talk about the things that we don't talk about this time of year. I want to talk about salvation. I want to talk about the fact that God has given us his son so that we can know him in deep and meaningful ways. There is no greater gift on earth than that. 1 John 1, 1 through 2 tells us this. I'll reread it to you. That which was from the beginning, speaking about God, the Holy Spirit, and his, his Son, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That is the greatest gift the world has ever known. That Jesus has come to the earth and we can know, see, sense, and touch him. And what John tells us here is that God gave us the gift of Jesus so that those who would believe in him could have an abundant and eternal life. That's the whole point of this passage. Inherent in this great Christmas gift of life, eternal life, is an important distinction we have to grasp. Because right now, every person in this room who is in Jesus, or is considering faith in Jesus, or is maybe professing faith in Jesus, but is very far from him in the way you feel or act, wherever you are on the, on the, the pathway to following Jesus, how you understand and apply this gospel truth to your heart makes a very significant difference in how you actually live in the promises of Jesus this time of year. You see, the way you understand this teaching will either cause you to have a faith in Christ that is marked by a peace and a confidence. You'll hear about the great revelation of God. You'll recognize that the light of this table is actually meant to illuminate your life also. We say that each week. God is trying to illuminate the areas of darkness in your life, the areas where there's struggle or hurt or temptation or trial. God is trying to give you a new way to live based on the life of his son Jesus. That is one option when it comes to the Christmas story. Or for those of us in Jesus, if we choose a different path, we are likely to see a faith that is marked by fear and anxiety. We're likely to hear about the light, but might actually live in forms of darkness. And I want to explain by way of illustration what John means in this passage. Let's say, uh, because illness is common to all of us, whether it's just a, the common cold, the flu, or more serious forms of illness, like, like cancer, everyone in this room has been ill to various degrees. And so this is an illustration that you likely will be able to connect with on some level. And so let's say for some time you've been really sick with a serious illness that has caused your overall quality of life to greatly suffer. However, you, you know, read online or you begin to do your research, you're, you're looking up why pain happens in certain areas of your body, and you think that you might actually know what's going on. And you come to this conclusion that while you are ill, you are ill in a way, you have a condition that's, that's treatable. It's a hard road to get well, but nonetheless, this is not like a death sentence. You actually ha can have hope in the fact that there are medical realities that can address this. And so in this situation, there are two basic ways you can handle the treatment of an illness. The first 
is despite knowing there are treatments available for the illness and likely physicians, surgeons, whatever you need in our world, all of that help exists. There are people who are willing to take the onus, really in some senses, the majority of the responsibility to help you get better. They're going to direct your steps to help you get better. There's a person who wants to, to aid you in that venture. You can, you can turn to that person or not, which is what we'll talk about here in a moment. And obviously, this choice would place, if you decided that, that this help was out there, but you didn't want to deal with it, you wanted to you know, be your own doctor on WebMD and address this issue on your own, the chance of you getting better is much less than actually seeing a physician. And I would say very likely what will happen is you'll apply to yourself an unhealthy self-imposed pressure. Because let's be frank, you probably are not fully qualified for the job. You like the training, the skills, experience, knowledge, equipment, support to deal with your illness that a physician or a hospital can actually provide for you. And even worse, and here's the point of what I'm making here, is that over time, if you're trying to remedy yourself, you probably will get more sick and more frustrated as you get more sick. Because reality says, if you do not have the ability to heal your body, or you require tools and skills beyond what you can do, you can try as hard as you want every day to make yourself better, but you cannot because you are not a physician. You don't have the apparatus, the equipment, the medicines to do so. On the contrary, let's say you get to the place where you did try to treat yourself for a while, but eventually you realize the illness did, it's in the same case, the illness exceeded your ability to do so, and you went a different road. You didn't get proud and continue to try to address this on your own. You actually said, I actually think I might need some help here. So you see a physician or you see a surgeon or you see whomever you, it is you need to see that can help this issue. And that person immediately begins to identify your symptoms. They start to run tests on you. They diagnose the illness. And then they say, okay, so we figured out what the problem is. And I want to now sit down and talk to you about a, an action plan to deal with this illness and the effects it's having on your life. And taking this a step further, because most physicians do care about you, they say, listen, we're not just going to provide you the tools here, but I want you to know that several times a year, we probably need to get together and consult about this. Like, I'm not just going to tell you what to do and provide you the tools you need it. I'm actually going to be very present in your life because we're going to beat this together. Your doctor promises to be with you for the rest of your days to help you identify, treat, overcome, and conquer the illness. And in this situation, it's just as clear, at least to me, that even though your life is still your own, your health is still dependent on the promise of your doctor. You have responsibilities in this, obviously. You have to follow the plan. You have to sort of press into the direction. But nonetheless, you have somebody who is directing your steps, who is encouraging you and exhorting you and directing you in a way that is all designed to help you be better. Now, clearly the option to treat yourself would be played with frustration, anxiety, and failure. And as a result, you are likely to live in a place where you try to get better and you just realize you can't. In the back of your mind, you know the illness continues. That's the first scenario. The second scenario, I want to be clear here, while it doesn't eliminate your responsibility to care for yourself, you know, your physician doesn't live in your living room and remind you to take your pills every day. You've actually got to own the reality of this condition. But the point is that you have somebody who's giving you instruction. And it takes a lot of the pressure, the weight of your health, off of you because there is somebody who is qualified and cares about you speaking into your life. Medically speaking, trusting your doctor has the ability to bring a great sense of hope, 
peace and comfort to your life. It doesn't mean that it makes the illness go away immediately. It doesn't mean that it makes life easier. But it does mean that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, something to strive for and somebody to strive towards it with, medically speaking. This is what John is talking about here from a spiritual perspective in 1 John. Spiritually speaking, John is trying to get our hearts to see when it comes to Jesus' role in our eternal life that the parallel is the same. Remember, life, we know it predominantly from the physical sense. Like, because we've been ill and our bones have hurt at times. We've had aches and pains. But eternal life is something that is much harder for us to wrap our heads around. Because we've not lived in an eternal life yet. We are eternal in the sense that Jesus has redeemed us, but we don't have the experience on that side of the fence as we do the physical world. And because of that, sometimes we hear passages like this and we just gloss over them, forgetting the fact that the physical body exists for roughly 80 years, but our eternal soul goes on forever. And so it does us well to care to manage the eternal nature of our soul too. And what's troubling about a passage like this, and this is true for all of the teachings that are what I would consider to be the foundations of the faith. It's incredibly common in the Christian faith to see foundational beliefs like this. At this time of year, especially when we sort of highlight them, we we take a truth like Jesus is the light of the world, he died for our sins, and wants us to live victorious, joyful lives. That's sort of like a very foundational promise Jesus makes us. Our kids right now, they came in here and they took our, we have two Christ candles. We upgraded this year because we felt Jesus was worthy of a bigger candle. They came and it's really, it smells like a forest down here. I wish you could smell it. It's pretty, pretty neat candle. But they came and they borrowed a Christ candle today because they are talking about the same thing next door. And it's interesting to me that a teaching like this, right, salvation, eternal life, Oftentimes, we as Christians, the more mature we get in the faith, we relegate this stuff to the remedial realities of the faith. We say, it makes sense, Pastor Anthony, that our kids would study, Jesus is the light of the world. But I'm a grown-up now, and I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I need, like, meat. Give me, like, beef steak sandwiches when it comes to Jesus. I I moved on from that. In fifth grade, I moved on from it. And what happens is these foundational teachings are actually not, they're foundational in one sense, but they're meant to be built in every story of the Christian narrative in our life. This foundation applies to every single thing we do. We don't move on from this stuff. We actually try to move more deeply into this stuff. We think like eternal life is a truth you get to move on from. While the Bible says this is a truth you believe and then spend the rest of your days believing more deeply. Processing, applying, believing more deeply. In the same way you would try to address the physical health issues in your life. You wouldn't just say, I got to take this pill and move on. You would actually say, there's a complement of things that my physician has told me that really will help me to be better, to get well. The same is true with the Christian faith. And I want to prove a point here. Here's how you can know how deeply you believe Jesus is your source of eternal life. Here's how you can know whether or not this is something you studied, past tense, or this is something that is a residual reality in your heart every day of your life. If you have ever, since coming to Jesus, if you have ever been fearful of something, if you have ever been anxious about something, if you have ever been depressed about something, if you have ever been hopeless in an area of your life, it is a clear sign that this is a place where the reality of eternal life is no, the light is not illuminating that area of our souls. And I say this not to sound judgmental, but to say every one of us has fallen into these categories. We all have moments and seasons of life where we know the words of this verse, but we no longer feel them really deeply 
in the depths of our hearts. And so what this means is we have to learn to reapply this stuff. We have to not move on from this. We have to dwell on this in that area of life. Wherever the light of Jesus goes dark, we have to apply eternal life to that. There is nothing, when you truly dwell in eternity, there is nothing on this earth that can, that can jar you. It just can't. Because this earth is not the end game. It is a significant part of the game. But it is a blip, a vapor, according to the Bible. When we talk about the eternity we will be, we will spend with God in heaven. It gives us perspective in the things we deal with. So if you've ever had any emotional tension in your life, and you say you love Jesus, it is very likely that we need to revisit the fifth grade lesson. Because those who receive the gift of eternal life are supposed to live with Christ's peace in their heart, in this life and the next. There's supposed to be an evident reality of Jesus in you. And this is why Jesus is called our Prince of Peace in the Bible. This is one of the great names God is assigned in Scripture. And I'll read this verse to you at the tail end of this message from Isaiah. The gift of eternal life means we no longer have to be anxious about anything. That doesn't mean we won't be anxious about anything. But it means when we are anxious about things, we can actually marry anxiety to a truth. That God is God and he has overcome these things. And the more you trust in these promises from God, the more likely you are to see fear lessen in your life. And we're going to talk a little bit about fear next week. I want to talk about essentially the, the, the things, the fear motives that keep people from embracing the truth of the Christmas message. That's next week's message. But I sort of want to prime the pump today on some fear issues. We don't have to fear death because John tells us that those who receive Jesus' gift of salvation, they, they live forever. So if you're a person who really is concerned about eternity, Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, they declare to the world that these things hold no power over him. And for those of us who are in him, they don't hold power over us either. That's a pretty profound truth, that we don't need to fear death because death is sort of, it's a chapter in life that is followed by a comma that leads to a different type of life, eternity with the Father in heaven, where we you know, shed this flesh and now live with him permanently in heaven. Beautiful truth. That's awesome. It's pretty powerful. And I think it can provide a genuine comfort for those who fear the inevitable reality of death. But for many people, this is a promise that is too long to wait for because the realities of today's stresses, the anxieties of today's life, they they have so overcome that promise that they don't even have time to stress about death tomorrow. In other words, I I like to say this a lot. They're, They're sort of at a place where They'd like to be able to stress about death because it would be a little more perspective. They can't, they, life looks like this to them right now and they can't get beyond tomorrow. And so a promise like this, you can see it has an immediate application, but it also has a future application. And I think the bullseye with eternal life is that we're kind of dwelling in both. We have perspective for eternity, but we don't think that this is just something God does and we've got to wait 80 years to figure it out or to experience it. Eternity begins immediately when we are in Jesus. <clears throat> the eternal life, our Prince of Peace, offers us for the future, it promises to enrich the quality of life we have right now. And that's an important truth to know. And this is why John says Jesus does more than just offer you an eternal life. Like the doctor, he commits to walk with you every step of the way to experience his life. He doesn't just say the light has come, period. He gives all these detailed descriptions of how the light has come and remains with us. And how you understand the implication of this is huge. Like the analogy we just looked at, it is the difference between believing you have to deal with the challenges of life and faith by solely trying harder and doing more, or recognizing that to receive the gift of life means you've chosen to rest your heart in what your great physician Jesus has already done for you. It doesn't remove the responsibility to listen and follow the doctor. 
but the onus of the direction of your life is now firmly put in the hands of the one who has created your life. And here is why this really matters for your quality of life in Jesus. It is very common today for Christians, and this is true even in the world we live in, who, though they would never say they believe this, this is sort of where our words and our deeds have to be congruent. They have a practical theology in their life that says they do believe, they believe that God has redeemed them. Like they believe the promise of Christmas. It's the first step in God saying you cannot do this without me. They will affirm these truths, but then they live in a way that is actually very contrary to that truth. It's sort of like this, this, this truth has been relegated to the fifth grade shelf. And practically what happens is they live in a pressure cooker. They misunderstand the gift of eternal life. They misunderstand the fact that if you really want to do more for Jesus and be more in your life, it begins by recognizing the one who enables you to be more and do more. In that sense, you can do great things without the pressure of believing you are your own God. Misunderstanding the gift of eternal life like this, it will lead us to one of two places in faith. Both are prevalent in the scripture. Both will rob you of Christ's life. And I'll be brief with them, but I want to at least mention them to you. The first is a place of pride and self-arrogance. When you look at the lights of the Advent table and say, I don't need that, or you live in a way where you declare you do need that, but then practically don't live as if you need this light, Jesus' light, what happens is you are destined to become a person who is proud and arrogant. And this is because when you believe this way, you will directly correlate God's love and acceptance with what you do. That's That's how that works. It essentially puts the onus of salvation back on your shoulders, where John is telling us the onus of salvation is on Jesus' shoulders. What happens here is when you succeed, when you do more, and the problem with this attitude is that most people who believe this way will likely do more. Think about it. If you look at some of the, the faiths in our world that are driven by works, there's a few, I won't mention them, but the reason why people are often so committed to do stuff is because they genuinely believe if I don't do this, God is not going to love me. And if you really care about God loving you, then, then you're likely going to succeed in the doing part. In the Protestant worldview, sometimes we kind of get the, the cart before the horse here. And a lot of times what happens is, if we're not careful, we will so value God's grace that we'll forget he actually calls us to do stuff. A lot of it. We forget that he's working his mission in the world out through us. And so what happens here is, we can, we can blur this in one of two ways. And arrogance simply means that slowly but surely, with your words, you believe, you profess a need for Jesus, but live your life as if you don't need him. And when this happens, you will have to worship something in your life, and it will likely become yourself. The more you succeed, the more you will think, yeah, I'm pretty good at this whole Christian thing. We're likely to get puffed up and then to start looking down on others when they do not meet our excessive standards. And the problem with this is that you can't ever have peace living like this. You can't actually have joy living like this. Because you can't rest living like that. It's impossible to rest in your work, which is something God has really been talking to me about over these past six months. That almost sounds like a, it's a paradox, but I think it's a really true one. Resting in our work, working to the best that we can before the Lord, and then sleeping well at night knowing we did the best we could for him. That's what I mean by this. When you think I'm going to work as hard as I can for God, and that's what's going to make him love me, you are not going to be able to rest. You're eventually going to get to this place where you will just think if you stop working, and I'm not encouraging the, to stopping the work, but if you think the more, I, the more I move away from doing this, the more God is going to move away from me, the more you think that God loves you because of what you do, the more likely you are to miss the real genuine love of God John speaks about here. Arrogance. The second is a place of self-despair. And I bring both of these up because these are really common themes 
in the, the, the Christmas season. One is sort of like the haves, that's what the first one is, and the second is the have not. Both of these attitudes are highlighted in our culture today. By self-despair, I simply mean this is sort of the antithesis of the first attitude because this is a person who believes uh, God actually can just never love them. They hear, they hear this verse in John and they think there is no way that that can apply to me. There is no way that this light can actually mean light in my life. I know me. I know who I am. I know how blue I am on most days. I know how hard my life has been. I know that, you know, I've, I've been this way my whole life. There is just no way that when God says the light is for me that that can actually matter. I like to call this person the Debbie Downer of Christianity, the person who knows God's love is out there, but they wrongly believe they're just too broken, too far, too whatever. You fill in the blank to receive it. They hear this teaching and they don't get it at all in a different way. And so what happens is, is they live in a different form of life. They live in a self-imposed penance. While the proud says, look at how great I am, the, the self-despair says, please don't look at me because I am not worth looking at. And that creates a different type of restlessness in your life. Because they've denied themselves to the, the ability to rest in this truth. That God says, when you look at the purpose of Jesus, there is no righteousness or unrighteousness that can keep you from him. He addresses both of those things. Whether or not we live in that reality for the rest of our days is another story. But to find God, to know God deeply, Jesus comes and he says, you cannot be righteous enough or unrighteous enough to see my Father in heaven when you come through me, because I'm the gate. And the gate begins in the manger. Now, if you're one, in one of these categories this morning, you have to hear this. Jesus' gift of eternal life, it just isn't based on anything we can or cannot do. It is rooted in what God has done for us in Jesus. This is the story of the gospel. This is what the story is meant to communicate, the story of Christmas. And this means if you want to experience Christ's gift of eternal life, and by experience I mean feel this stuff, emotively tap into this stuff, live out of this stuff, you have to stop trying to figure out how to make God love you, and you have to fix your eyes on the light of Christ. And the Christmas story, much like Christianity, Christmas teaches us what is perhaps the greatest irony in the whole Christian faith. All of the major waypoints of the Christian calendar show us God intervening in places in our lives when we were unable to do something. And I'm not trying to denigrate the, the humanity. I'm not trying to you know, paint us as weak and frail people who can't do anything. But when it comes to the reality of knowing God, of eternal life, the message of the Christmas Advent table is that we could not do enough to earn this. And God knew that. And that's why he sent Jesus. So we didn't have to. And so if you want to experience this gift of life, you really have to press into who Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you, this is a contrary wisdom to the way we are wired as people. It's a contrary wisdom because we do not live in a world that often understands grace like this. We live in a world that often values tit for tat. And when it comes to the Christian faith, the origination point of it is always God doing the tit and the tat. He gives and he takes. He is doing both. And we're to press into that promise. When you receive and deeply believe in the wonderful gift of life through Jesus that he offers us through faith, it really does give you a freedom in Christ. It allows you to work hard and rest well. It allows you to, in the physical sense, take your medicine and take care of your body, but also know that you have a great physician who is guiding you in every step of the way. It, it helps you to avoid being proud and missing the light of Jesus or being in the pit of pity martyring yourself daily and missing the light of Jesus. Both are forms of darkness. Understanding your life in Christ like this gives you a compass to guide you in the way you see your relationship with God. It gives you a more accurate picture of the way God sees you. 
and it really emphasizes how God wants to relate to us in Jesus. And this leads me to the second gift that John talks about today. He doesn't just say, Jesus is here, have eternal life. He doesn't just say, exercise 30 minutes a day and take your pills. There is something far more substantial that we're promised here besides eternal life. We are also promised Jesus as an advocate in eternal life. The second truth I want to share with you is that in Jesus, God gave us the gift of eternal fellowship. He gives us life and then the Trinity, the three forever. 1 John 1, 3 through 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. What a word. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We've been given eternal life so that we can fellowship with God and our joy will be complete. That's what he's teaching us here. And verse 3 teaches us something amazing about the kind of relationship the coming of Christ meant and means we can have with God. If you're a Bible head, you know that in this passage, the Greek word used for fellowship is koinonia, and that is a common word in the New Testament. It, it sort of describes the New Testament experience in following Jesus. In general, what it means is a people who are set apart share a common enjoyment of a particular gift or experience. And in this case, when we talk about koinonia, which is a common word in, the, in ancient Greek anyways, koinonia is applied to the relationship God has with us and us with him. So we're not just talking about how we hang out at the coffee table, which is super important and a value for us, that we have meaningful for relationships that far exceed the boundary of this room. This is actually talking about the kind of coffee God wants to drink with us. He's talking about the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And what he's saying here is, there is a common enjoyment, an experience, a gift. His name is Jesus, and I would like us to rally around that bonfire. I would like us to enjoy life together with each other around my son, Jesus. What he's talking about here is this powerful grace of God, the blessing God shows us by giving us himself through Jesus. And what this means is that because of Christmas, every Christian is now given the opportunity to experience a type of fellowship with God that no person on earth was ever able to experience until Christ came to earth. It was amazing three weeks ago in my community group, this actually came up. We were reading through this, ver this passage in 1 John, and we were talking about the way we can now relate to God in the New Testament, the differences between the Old and the New Testament. God is fully available to his people in the Old Testament, and we might say more fully through Jesus in the New Testament. We were talking about the way God related to people, his people in both Testaments. And man, when you really press into this statement here, the way God wants to know us in the New Testament, it is mind-blowing. It's referring to the unprecedented way that Christ's coming allows us to personally know and experience God. And whenever we talk about personal relationship here, again, that's one of those fifth grade things. I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and now I know him for all of eternity. That is a trite statement at times in our faith. At least it can be. But it is a statement that should never be trite. In modern Christianity, the idea of a personal relationship with God is common, and I would say somewhat colloquial. It's a term we throw around. And in some ways, we want it to be as common as koinonia fellowship, as common as supper at the dinner table. But I don't ever want it to be so common that it loses the edge of all it rightfully deserves. This was nothing close to a colloquial reference to the people in the first century world who were reading this. Anything but it. I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament, God is accessible. God's people know him. God breaks into the world in a different way. 
He is revealing himself in a way that's leading to Jesus. And so I don't want you to think like Israel got short-sold. But I do want you to know that in the New Testament, the climax of the covenant comes right here. We have an ability to relate to God in an amazing way. In the Old Testament, God's accessible, but it is not like how it is today. The same rhythms might be there, but the accessibility is a little different. No one in the Old Testament could even look upon God or approach him without dying. In the case of Moses... He got, you remember that story next to this, he got a little bit of a glimpse of God. God hit him behind a, in between some rocks and, you know, his sort of coattail went by Moses and he glowed for like eight months. That's what happened. You know, like, so a glimpse of God's essentially robe and he's glowing, illuminated, like he's radiated. Jewish history tells us a lot about the temple culture, right? About the way that the sacrificial system, the way God set apart his people to, to know him and worship him. And all of this is fulfilled in Jesus, which is why I don't want us to take advantage of this. Jewish history tells us it is common, like to tie a rope around the ankles of the priests who enter God's holy of holies in the temple because they needed at times to be safely drug out. If they went in there with unconfessed sin, they were instantly dead. They would drop dead. And when they heard the bells stop ringing, they pulled them out by their ankles. What a difference! I'm not saying we should be any less concerned with bringing our sin to God, but I am saying it's a little different in the way God deals with us, right? I mean, would you come to a community group if I said we lost a member last week because <laughs> the bell stopped ringing and we had to drag him in our backyard? Huh? You probably would not come to my community group if that was the case. It's a little different. We don't take sin and repentance any less seriously, but we do recognize, man, God's done something pretty powerful here. We did lose somebody last week to bells too. I just need to get it out there. Our insurance doesn't cover that. Listen, up until this point of history, this is how people see God. There's this deep sense of reverence and awe. It's a healthy fear at times, and I mean healthy. So you can only imagine how shocking it would have been to hear John say this stuff. God's become man, and in Jesus, he's saying things like, you know, we've seen him now with our own eyes. We're not glowing anymore, at least not glowing like Moses. We've heard God with our own ears. Uh, we've touched God with our own hands. Hey, just an FYI, like when you're in Jesus, his spirit is in you. Jesus literally lives in you. You are the temple now. This was revolutionary. This marked a new covenant, a new way God made himself known, and it carried with it an unprecedented access to God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is the point John is trying to drive home here. The gift Jesus offers us, it's a chance to experience a very special kind of relationship with God. And simply put, it is the very same love God the Father and Jesus the Son, this love they share with each other for all of eternity, has been extended to us. That's what koinonia means. It means God wants to sit at your supper table with you. He wants to be engaged in every area of your life. He wants to communicate with you like you do your best friends on earth. He wants a place at your table. And you have to know that before he asked to have a place at your table, he invited you to have a place at his. And as Christians, we should never forget this. This truth is what Christmas is about. It is about love and relationship. It is about the opportunity God gave humanity to experience the most perfect gift of love the world has ever known. It is about God inviting us to experience an eternal and infinite love, one that he, his son, and his spirit have never been without. And now they don't ever want us to be without it. It's a love that is powerful, profound, it is selfless, it is devoted. It is a love that when we read the scripture, always desires to be in each other's presence. They don't prefer to be separated. This is Jesus' only complaint on the cross. Where are you? You've forsaken me. That's the only thing he complained about on the cross was the fact that he traded this permanent place with God in heaven to suffer for our sin. 
It's a love that longs to be with each other at all times, a perfect love based on mutual trust and respect, a love built on fidelity, peace, unity, and hope. And this is the greatest gift of Christmas. It's the real gift of Christmas that we've been invited in to participate and experience. And it is based on this incredibly pure form of love and fellowship that God has with his son and spirit. It's the love shared between God and Jesus. That's what, that's what John tells us. This is an amazing promise to dwell on. Here's where we will begin to wrap up. If you're already in Jesus, I want you to not not think about this. I want you to really ask yourself, like, when you leave this room, is this really what is defining these next couple of weeks for you? The gifts, the family, this stuff is beautiful, and I am all for it. I will do all of that. But it is my prayer that we don't disconnect that from this. Even those gifts are gifts that God has given us. If you are a person in Jesus, ask yourself, are you dwelling on this? And I want to challenge you again. In your seats and on that table are invite cards. There are people in your life who do not have this life. There are people who heard about the light of Jesus and rejected it. There are people who have never been meaningfully engaged with it. There are people who are waiting to hear about the light of Jesus. Please do not leave this room today not thinking about those people in your life. Grab a card, invite a person, Be Jesus to them wherever God provides you the opportunity. Because people today, more than ever, I've said this a million times, they are for the spiritual. We are in a world that likes the spiritual again. They don't necessarily like the spiritual side of things that Jesus offers. Oftentimes what we see is they're looking for the same thing, the same koinonia. They're just looking to lesser gods and rituals that are far less personal than what Jesus offers us. And I'm telling you, if you have people in your life like that, the way God wants to remedy Koinonia is through you. God wants you to be that personal touch, that care in that person's life. All the research today tells us we live in a world where people are increasingly open to the idea of the spiritual, even the mystical we see again. Where they seek this, though, is an entirely different story. But what they seek is not. And this is where, just like John in this passage, we have to be committed to experiencing and proclaiming the message of Christmas to our own hearts and those in our lives. It's not just a story we we read on the 25th of December. It's a story meant to shape every area of life. Simply put, Christmas means God came for you. He went to incredible lengths to get close to you, incredible lengths to be near you. And the question is, when you recognize you've been invited to to that table, do you live in awe of that gift? Do you go to great lengths to be close to God? Do you go to great lengths to be near to him? Do you really like knowing him through his word and praying and community, do you really recognize God has offered you a spot at his table and you take advantage of that invitation? Because when you do that, you'll be able to receive the last gift of Christmas that John promises here. And I don't have any teachings connected to it. I just want to mention it to you. He says, listen, all of this is happening so that, man, our joy would be complete. He says, God has given you eternal life and the ability to be in him in ways the world has never known until Jesus so that your joy would be complete that the peace, hope, and love of God that abounds in infinite perfection in heaven today will be in your heart today. So look, bikes, electronics, video games, golf clubs, if you're into that thing, you know my take on golf, clothing, whatever else you're asking for this Christmas season, they are good gifts, meaningful gifts, I'm sure. We're for those gifts. But you have to know that there is no gift like the one we read about here in John, 1 John. There is no gift like the fellowship God has offered us. So make sure those gifts have a proper place in your priority scheme. Because this teaching reminds us, Jesus' love preexisted the world. Jesus' love created the world. 
We just sang that because of this, there is nothing God cannot do in the world or in your life. And when we sinned, Jesus' love took action and came into the world. Through his birth, God showed us we were still the objects of his affection in this world. Through his death, he reminds us how far Jesus' love goes for those he did love. And this morning, I encourage you to think on that, to experience for the first time or in a deeper way the gift of God's eternal life and fellowship in Jesus. Receive his gift. He's offering it every second of every day, every year, to every person on earth. Receive the gifts of Christmas and believe in Jesus. I leave you with what I think is the greatest Christmas verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Why can we receive these gifts? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, your and my Prince of Peace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the way that this month, it is my prayer anyways, that as we, as we now are one week away from this amazing remembrance of what you have done for us. In the same way, God, we take communion every month to remember what you've done for us on the cross. This is the month of the year where we celebrate Advent to remember what you did for us by coming to the manger. I pray, Lord, that with the same emphasis, our hearts would be truly turned and fixed to your son. And I pray now, God, as we move into this time of response, before we move back into our world today and and the reality of Christmas being a week away, I pray, God, that all of these things that will take place in our lives this week would do nothing but enhance our love and pursuit of you. May we, in ways we have never experienced before, feel, know deeply the koinonia relationship you offer us. May we relate to you. May we sit at your supper table this week. May we be in your presence. And God, I pray you would reveal Jesus to us and and just genuinely let us experience him in ways that, that are worthy, God, of what we celebrate here this morning, your first advent. This is prayed now in the name of Jesus. Amen.